Does anyone have any questions from last time? No? Okay. So your homework uh, will be due next Wednesday at the beginning of class. So these problems are assigned uh, out of your textbook. So when it says do problem 2.2, .2, that means turn to chapter 2 and do problem 2. And uh, just to remind you when my office hours are, Tuesdays 4 to 5, my office is room 262, although I also reserve the conference room, which is 279, in case a lot of people show up. Your grader is Jean Wee Yang, and he is going to have an office hour Wednesday morning at 9.30. How many people could not make a 9.30 a.m. office hour with him. Okay, so that's if you could make it. All right. What about a Tuesday afternoon office hour with him? Uh, what? Yeah, well, he minus four, so he would have to be earlier in the afternoon. Do you guys have classes early afternoon? What about a pardon? Three o'clock is when you start having classes. Right, so what about a 1 p.m. Tuesday office hour? Can anyone not make a 1 p.m. Tuesday office hour? How long? Yeah. You can make part of it? No, I have classes coming in all the way to Tuesday. I'm sorry. Okay. All right, but, okay, there's only one person I think that can't make the 1 to 2 p.m. office hour. Can you make my Tuesday office hour? Four or five? That's good enough. Okay, so I'll let the grader know that that is a good time. 1 to 2 p.m. Let me try 2 to 3. How many people could not make a 2 to 3 office hour on Tuesday? Just one. Okay, can you make my yeah. other office hour? Okay, so 2 to 3 is also okay. All right. I'll, uh, so we won't do this Wednesday one because most of you can't make it, okay? But we'll we'll put his office hour on Tuesday afternoon, and that will get emailed out to you. Do check the course website. The course website is off the physics main site, or you can copy that really long URL right there, okay, into your browser. The best way to do it is just go to the physics website and click through. The way you log on to the, to the website for the class is with your Purdue Career account. So it will ask you for a username and password. That is your username and password for all your Purdue Career accounts. If you're enrolled in the class, you'll have access to lecture notes online and homework solutions and all those goodies. And if it's not working for you, let me know, okay? And then we'll, we'll work that out. So what you'll find on the website is important announcements, lecture notes. Uh, I have a lecture audio blog. This is an experiment, so we'll see how it goes. If it starts taking up too much time, I might quit the experiment. But for now, you have a lecture audio blog, and <coughs> solutions will eventually get posted there after the homework's due, not before. And the uh, syllabus will get updated once in a while, and that'll be on the, the website. The course email list, I sent a test email last night. How many people did not get a test email from me who actually checked the email? Okay. All right. If you're if you're worried about it, go go back and check your email. The name. Somebody said they thought it was spam. The name of the course website list, email list is really long and has a lot of numbers in it. So look for something that says fizz number 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 and looks like spam. But it's not spam. It's from me. That's your course email list. 
if you didn't get it and you were enrolled in the class, that means there's a problem with your ITAP career account. So you need to contact ITAP to get that uh, settled down. Okay? All right. And now that everyone's here in class, please come on time in the future. Okay. Any questions from last time? Okay. All right. Forging ahead. Last time we talked about what stationary states are, what we mean by stationary states. And we mean stationary in the sense of quantum mechanics. We mean quantum mechanical states that, that uh, whose observables do not change with time. So we know that every quantum mechanical wave function has a phase that oscillates in time according to the energy of the state. But physical observables like the probability density or the position or the velocity of the particle don't change with time if it's in a stationary state. And the stationary state is simply an eigenstate of energy. So that's what we mean by state in this class. We mean a quantum state that's an eigenstate of energy. And we played with a program called Atom in a Box, which was written by Dean Dowder. You can find it here. And uh, that's what we use to demonstrate the difference between a stationary state and a state that's not stationary. Okay, stationary states, when you look at their probability density, don't look like they're doing anything. Whereas non-stationary states, when you look at the probability density, it can move around. Okay, you always have the particle there somewhere, but the particle's kind of oscillating around. Degeneracy means multiplicity of uh, how many states are available to something. So we looked, for example, uh, at the number of states that are at the same energy in the system. That's going to be very important for us, number of states at the same energy. We're going to call all the states that are at the same energy and that are at the energy of the system the accessible states. So accessible states are whatever uh, is the energy of the system. And the multiplicity of states available is the same thing as the degeneracy. So you're, you're used to maybe the degeneracy language thinking from uh, uh, your chemistry classes where you talked about the hydrogen atom and you had the, the 3p orbital had a degeneracy of 6. Because you had three orbitals in space, you put an up spin or a down spin in each one. So a set of states that are all the same energy is degenerate. And we'll count that here in this class as a multiplicity. And we talked about the fundamental assumption of statistical mechanics, which is that a closed system, and it just means we take a collection, draw a box around it, and don't let it interact with anything else. A closed system is equally likely to be in any accessible state. And we also looked at the binary or the two-state model, which was our model of just randomly flipping coins, for example. We did some calculations about that. Or it might apply to physical systems, such as spin systems, where we have a collection of electrons that either have a spin up or a spin down. Or maybe we have a little set of magnets. Some of them are up and some are down. And the multiplicity function simply counts okay, how many states are at a particular macrostate of a system. So for example, if I have a set of spins up, down, down, up, and so on, and I count up the number of ups and I count up the number of downs, okay, then I can say I have a certain number up in the system and a certain number down in the system. And I'll label all those states that have the same number up and the same number down as being similar. So I'll say that they have a similar macro state to them, okay, and that they have the same number up and the same number down. Sorry, the same number up. Uh, and so the multiplicity function uh, we saw was equal to uh, n factorial, the total number of particles in the system, 
divided by number up factorial, number down factorial. Okay, and that's simply n choose n up. So it's the number of ways that you can have uh, n up number of upspins. Okay. Are there any questions from that last time? What, what does that statement actually mean? Which one? Uh, fundamental function. I mean, I, a closed system. What does a closed system mean? I mean, the whole thing. Does it mean that there is no preference in terms of for the particle to choose any, any state or what does that actually mean? Yes, it means there's no bias there. Okay, so you can choose whichever. Right, right. And the accessible states, we mean uh, microstates, okay, so microscopic configurations. There's a lot of different microscopic configurations. And we will uh, today start making a distinction between microstates, <coughs> the actual configuration written out in gory detail, and macrostates. So macrostate, for example, if I took uh, okay, you calculated things last time in class about macrostates. We, you pretended to throw pennies, okay, 10 pennies or 100 pennies, and you calculated the chances of getting half of them heads. Half heads is a macrostate because there's something there that's similar among several of the microstates. But there are several ways to get half heads, okay. So uh, when we say the system is equally likely to be in any accessible state, these are microstates we're talking about. Microscopic configuration. What, what is the state? The state, yes, okay. So the state is the quantum mechanical state of the system, okay? And we're talking about energy eigenstates. So it's got a particular energy associated with it. I think it's going to become clearer as we do some examples. Yeah. And do those stationary states, all of them? That's correct. That's correct. So Energy eigenstate, okay, is a state with a definite energy, and states with a definite energy <coughs> are called stationary states. So that's the same thing. And the reason they're called stationary states is because they're the time dependence of their physical observables. Well, there isn't one. There is no time dependence to the physical observables. They're constant and stationary. Uh, that's the usefulness of energy eigenstates, by the way. Uh, if you want to challenge your brains, that statement is deeply related to something called Noether's theorem. I mean, Noether was a mathematician, and uh, she derived a Noether's theorem, which relates symmetry to conservation laws. So when you have a system that's time translation invariant, that is, its laws don't change with time, it will exhibit energy conservation. So that's not part of this course. That was just to challenge you, okay, that there's something deep about that. And it's not a trivial thing. But for the purposes of our class, you just need to know that we're interested in stationary states that are eigenstates of energy. And that means the observables won't change the time. Okay. On the other hand, we don't necessarily know what state the system does. So we'll assume it's, uh, if, if it's a closed system, it's equally likely to be in any accessible state. Are there any other questions? Before going on? Okay. So what we'll cover today is we'll study the multiplicity function in more detail, and specifically its sharpness. We did a little bit of that last time. Last time, when you calculated flipping 100 pennies, you calculated the probability of getting half heads and the probability of getting 20% heads, and you found out that you were uh, the more pennies you added to the system, the more likely you were to get nearer and nearer to uh, basically the most probable configuration. We'll have to employ Sterling's approximation 
and I'll tell you what that is. And we'll find that the multiplicity function, okay, if we're doing this problem that's for the two-state system, where we can think of it as flipping coins, or we can think of it as individual independent spins, we'll, we will find that in the limit of large system size, the probability <coughs> distributions end up going Gaussian. Okay, so Gaussian is, an, is a nice function that means that we'll be able to calculate the heck out of the problem, which is good. Gives us stuff to talk about in class that's concrete. It gives you homework problems to do. We like Gaussian physicists. We'll also talk about weighted averages. Okay, that is, if I know the microstate behavior of the system, how can I, from that knowledge, take averages out of the system that will correspond to things I can measure? So weighted averages will end up giving us things like temperature, volume, heat capacity, things like that. We will have to, we'll, we'll introduce the concept of RMS fluctuations, root mean squared fluctuations, how much does the system tend to fluctuate. We'll see that for a system of n particles, the fluctuations will start to go like square root of n. Is that a somewhat familiar idea? You've seen that before? Okay, we'll actually demonstrate that. And we'll go uh, talk a little bit more about the fundamental assumption of statistical mechanics for a closed system, we're interested in accessible states, and accessible states are equally likely. Uh, we may or may not get to this other stuff today about ensembles, two systems, thermal contact, and the most probable configurations. Right. When you see a star appear in the notes, that means it's really important. <laughs> and it's worth your time to memorize it. So fluctu RMS fluctuations will like square root of n. Stick that in your brain. So, Statistical mechanics means we're talking about statistics and probabilities and those sorts of things. And basically, statistical mechanics works for the same reason that casinos make money. Okay? How do casinos make money? They play a game many, many, many times. Okay? They know that sometimes the customer is going to win. Most of the time, they're not, and the casino will win. Okay? So that's how they make money. Any one roll of the dice is random, completely random. Okay? If I give you a pair of dice, you roll it, nobody can tell you what's going to come up on any given roll. Unless the dice that have been, you know, messed with or something and someone cheated. Let's assume no one cheated. So any one dice you can't predict. But if you roll the dice a million times, I know what the outcome's going to be. Okay? I know what percentage of times you're going to get snake eyes. I know what percentage of times you're going to get a five and a four. Okay? And I can write down a probability distribution of how often certain numbers will come up in your dice roll. So if you own a casino, for example, you need to know about most probable outcome and the statistics of large numbers. You also need to know about these things if you're going to do statistical mechanics. So let's say, for example, we want to play poker. And in your hand, <laughs> you have a straight flush. My hand is pretty much eyeful, because I have only an ace high here. Now, if I think uh, individually about the, the probability of either of us getting either of those hands. Okay, so what's the probability that you got exactly that hand? The probability is about 1 divided by 2.6 times 10 to the 6, of 1 in 2 million, that you got that particular hand. Okay, and I just got that by saying, well, good. You know, so many cards in the deck, and I gave you a set of five of them, so, you know, you could do the math of, of that many, choose five. The probability of me getting my hand is the same, though. So it's one particular hand, 
There are all the possible sets of hands that are out there. All the possible sets of poker hands that are out there are about two million. So my hand has a one in two million chance of coming up. Your hand has a one in two million chance of coming up. Why do you get to win? Okay? The straight flush, we say, is rare, but my hand is rare too. Okay? My hand, you know, who's seen that before? Have you ever had that come up, that exact hand come up playing poker? Okay. Maybe. Maybe not. So what we want to distinguish between is the <coughs> microstate and the macrostate. So these microstates, that is the particular hand you're dealt in, in a game of poker, are equally likely. That actually ties very well into the fundamental assumption of statistical mechanics. But the macrostates will make distinctions between. So for example, in playing poker, your particular hand in one particular microstate has a one in two million chance of coming up. The macro state, called a straight flush though, there's only about 40 ways to get that. So that's what makes it rare, okay? And the number of microstates producing this macro state called I fold, I don't have anything good, is quite a bit, okay? On the order of, of a million again. So one of these macro state outcomes is a lot more likely than the other one. So that's why that's why some people win in poker and some don't, okay? So any particular configuration, not likely in its own, but we'll start grouping them together and seeing what is more likely or less likely. Mathematics to keep in mind today are how logarithms work. We're going to be using a lot of logarithms today. So just to remind you, since we're coming back from summer, if you have a log of A times B, that's going to be log of A plus log of B. Log of C divided by D, going to be log of C minus log of B, and log of A to the X is X times log A. I know you know that. I just want you to remember it before we dive into what's going to be a bunch of algebra. Are there any questions so far? So in the binary state model, okay, this system where we have, right, I see some people scribbling, scribbling furiously, uh, I will post the lectures online after after class, so this this will be up online as a PDF file. And the uh, the multiplicity function that we're interested in in the two-state model, or the binary state model, where any particle can be upspin or downspin, or for example, you have a collection of coins and they can be heads up or heads down. So these little arrows would represent heads up or heads down. The multiplicity function which tells you the number of different ways you can get something. We derived this last time from the binomial expansion. Okay, so the number of ways that you can get n up with n down is this. It's n choose n up, which is n factorial divided by n up factorial divided by n down factorial. And the multiplicity function is just the number of ways this particular thing can, can come up. So what we're about to embark on is that Factorials are a bit annoying to deal with, okay? So we're going to take this factorial function and assume that we're working in the limit of large number of particles. We call that the thermodynamic limit. So the limit of large number of particles. And we will uh, massage this, basically, using what's called Stirling's approximation, which is a good approximation to a factorial if you have a large number in there. and uh, through a lot of algebra, we're going to come up with a much better statement of this multiplicity function. Okay. 
we're going to find out that this funny factorial uh, expression turns into a Gaussian in the limit of large system size. So that's where we're headed. It's going to take a bit of algebra. So, all right. What I'd like to do first is take the logarithm of this. Okay. So first, take the logarithm of the multiplicity function. So log of n factorial here. Okay. And then I subtract everything in the denominator. Minus log of n up factorial minus log of n down factorial. You with me so far? Okay. And Sterling's approximation is uh, the following. n factorial, when n is really large, is approximately equal to 2 pi times n to the 1 half times <coughs> n to the n times e to the minus n. Does that look simpler to anyone? Yeah, I know. It looks a lot more complicated at this point. <laughs> but it's going to turn out to, to be a lot simpler at the end of the day. Okay? So we'll do some manipulations. You can already see that since there's an e to the minus n coming up, we have a chance of getting a Gaussian out of this. Okay, so at the end of the day, we're going to find uh, a way to re-express this in terms of e to the minus something squared, which would be a Gaussian, which is nicely peak, and we'll be able to do analytic manipulations on it. The way you get Sterling's approximation here is simply by taking a Taylor expansion of n factorial. Okay. So n factorial, uh, if you sit down and take a Taylor expansion, you'll get this stuff. So we're interested in this right here. So we need the log of the multiplicity function. So I need to know how to take the log of n factorial, the log of n up factorial, and the log of n down factorial. So I'll just use Sterling's approximation. Okay. So let's just plug that in here. If this is n factorial, according to Sterling's approximation, then I can take the logarithm of both sides. So log of n factorial on the left, and I'm going to pull down the one half here, right? Is log of a to the x, so it's x times log of a. So pull down this one half right here, and I'll get the log of 2 pi. Okay. Here's the rest of the one half times log of n. Okay, that came from here. This term here in the n becomes n times log n. And you know how to take the logarithm of e to the minus n right here. Logarithm of e to the minus n is going to be minus n. So <coughs> let's just take the logarithm of both sides. And now, uh, now we're going to manipulate it a little bit. Okay. So here, uh, constant, let's see, this minus n just comes straight down, so you can ignore the minus n for a little bit. This log of n, I'd like to play with that a little bit, okay? So n, which is the total number of particles in the system, is n up plus n down. So that's what I do here, n is n up plus n down, okay? Here's the half coming down. Notice I've got an extra half floating around. That's not quite fair unless over here I subtract it again, okay? So what I did was I added a half log in right here, and I subtracted a half log in here means I can put log of n in the denominator. Any questions so far? Okay. We're just doing a lot of algebra. So if this is what log of n factorial looks like, I'll let it run out. Log of n up factorial is the same thing. Log of n down factorial is the same thing. Okay. Where every place I see n, I just put n up. Or every place I see n, I put n down. Okay. So... What's important here is log of n factorial and log of n up factorial and log of n down factorial. Right, the star popped up. Okay, so when the star pops up next to something, that means it's important. 
Okay, so it's worth remembering which one of these is Stirling's approximation right here. Sorry, shouldn't say remembering. I don't mean that you should memorize Stirling's approximation. You can always look it up. It's a bit complicated, but know what it is. Okay, that it's what we use when we want to take a factorial function and put it at the limit of large system size. Okay, so the binary state model, forging ahead, we calculated on the last slide what log of n factorial is according to Stirling's approximation, log of n up factorial, log of n down factorial. And where we're heading with this is that we would like to manipulate uh, log of g, okay? So log of g, which is the multiplicity function here, okay, log of g being log of n factorial minus log of n up factorial minus log of n down factorial. We can put these in for it, okay? Since it's, it's uh, log of g itself is this term, minus this term, minus that term. Okay, so take the top line and subtract the next two lines. Okay, so if we gather terms for a while here, uh, we have a lot of one half. Okay, we have a one half log of two pi over n. Here, I have a one half log of two pi, one half log of two pi. I can gather a lot of these terms are going to give me the one half log of one over two pi. Okay, because I had a one-half log of 2 pi minus itself minus itself. Okay, so you get a one-half log of 1 over 2 pi. Uh, the ends, let's catch the ends here. We have, this guy just comes straight down, one-half log of, of 1 over n. Okay, and up and n down we can also catch. So here, for example, the n up plus a half. Stare at that term for a little bit. Here's an n up plus a half. That's why I manipulated it that way. Okay, so we can cap them together. n up plus a half, n up plus a half, log of n minus log of n up. Comes to this term. n up plus a half times log of n over n up. Okay, so that takes care of this n up plus a half and that n up plus a half. Here have, here's the n down plus a half and n down plus a half. So if I catch those together, subtract, if I take this term here and subtract that term, I'll come up with an n down plus a half log of n over n down. Okay. Any questions so far? Okay. What happened to my ends? Yeah, okay. They went away. Good. All right. Bunch of algebra still, but we'll, where we're heading with this is we're taking the multiplicity function and we want to manipulate it into a Gaussian, which is something that we can use a lot easier. So what's going to help us define the Gaussian is to take what's called the spin axis. So let me take any configuration. Okay, it's got a certain number of ups and a certain number of downs. And I take the number of ups minus the number of downs. That's going to give us, but last time we called that the magnetization, right? So a certain number of ups minus a certain number of downs. The excess is what I'm going to call the magnetization. So here, for example, the excess would be 2 to spin. Now, if we define that then uh, as 2s, why is the 2 there? The 2 is there because your book uses the 2. So just trying to be, uh, be nice and go along with your book, okay? So you can follow along in your, in your chapter in Catel. So n up minus n down, we're going to define as 2s. n down. Okay, what that means is that the number of downs 
is basically a half the particles in the system minus s. Okay. Number up is half the particles in the system plus s. Okay. I hope that makes sense. So for example, in this in this system here, I have two more ups than downs. Okay. So so what's the spin excess for this guy? It's two. Okay. And then if I want the number up, I simply take half the number of particles in the system, okay, and I add half the spin excess, which would be one, or subtract half the spin, spin excess to get the number down. Okay. So what we need, okay, here's our previous slide. We need to be able to manipulate log of n over n up. And log of n over n down. So here we're interested in log of n up over n down. So I'm just going to throw in our definition now of the excess. Okay. It's fair to ask why in the world did I introduce new notation. The spin excess is going to be the quantity that, that the Gaussian will be determined by. Okay. So our Gaussian will end up being like e to the minus s squared. So that's, that's why it ends up being useful. Is that spin excess will, will pop up in the Gaussian. So log of n up divided by n down. n up, number of up spins, we said we can define it here as a half the total number of particles plus half the spin excess. Okay, so one half n plus s. And here, okay, now what I've done is I've just divided n by both sides. Okay, so this is log of a half plus s over n. And now, Okay, I'm going to re-manipulate a, a little bit here, and then I'd like to pull out the two. So let me take this uh, and pretend it's log of one plus two s over n, all divided by two. Okay, just pull the two out, and then I can pull out the minus log of two right there. Now, the reason I did that is because now I have a log of one plus something. Okay, hope you recognize log of one plus a variable, right? When the variable is small, so for example, when the spin excess is very small, which you already calculated, that'll be the case in a very large system size. Take a, take, you, you know, you calculated that for 100 pennies, uh, you had a far larger chance of getting half of them heads than 20% of them heads. 20% of them heads is down to eight orders of magnitude. Okay. So when you go to really large system sizes, like an Avogadro's number of pennies, which would be a lot of pennies, <coughs> but Avogadro's number of, of particles, then it is a really good approximation to say that that excess, okay, the amount you are away from the most probable configuration is pretty darn small, okay, down by orders of magnitude. This is a great approximation. So log of 1 plus x is approximately equal to x minus a half x squared, just a Taylor expansion, okay, so you can look that up in a math book, and that's going to be good for x is much, much less than 1. Any questions so far? It's just a bunch of math, but I promise it'll be worth it. Can I turn into a Gaussian? Gaussians are really useful. So, what we're doing, we're using S to write a better multiplicity function. So, this we we needed to find out what log of n up over n down is, and also it's down. Sorry, log of n up divided by n and its counterpart for the downspin. And we found that this was equal to log of 1 plus 2s over n, all minus log of 2. And in the limit that s is very small compared to the total number of spins in the system, then log of 1 plus x 
is approximately equal to x minus a half x squared. So now we'll just plug that in. This log of n up over n is approximately equal then to x, which is 2s over n, minus a half x squared, which is 2s over n squared. And that minus log of 2 still sticks around. The plus dot 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 means there are Taylor terms that we don't care about. So in the down case, okay, it's going to look exactly the same. But the way you get from up to down is by switching the sign of x. So here, log of n up has to do with 2s over n. Okay, so that just gets a minus sign on the front here. Why don't I switch this line here, for example? Yeah. Okay, so if I take minus s squared, it's, it's the same thing as s squared, so that doesn't switch its sign. Okay. So, still trying to write a better multiplicity function. Here's where we were. Okay. We had that the log of g was one half log of one over two pi n plus n up plus a half log of n over n up plus n down plus a half log of n over n down. Where the spin excess is defined as the number up minus the number down. Here's where we were. We just calculated on the previous slide. Let's see, this is kind of in the way. If you can tell anyway what's going on. Uh, what's, what's important here is we needed to know what log of n over n up was and n over n down. So log of n down over n up was minus 2s, okay, minus half s over 2s over n squared. This was the same thing, but with a plus sign right there. That's bothered me. Let's take that out. So what we have to do now, by the way, the way lecture notes get organized uh, is that stuff above the bar is stuff that we already did. Okay, stuff below the bar is what we're doing now. So this is what we did on the previous slide. So log of n is a half log of 1 over 2 pi n. Just carry that straight down. Now, <coughs> I have here then uh, the n up plus a half. And now I'm going to put in what should be there for log of n over n up. Where did the sign here come from? Uh, the inverse. Because so, it was log of n up over n is what I calculated. Yeah. Okay. So there's my sign, okay? Is that I calculated log of n up over n, but I really needed log of n over n up. So minus sign in front, no problem. Okay. And here's the term for n down, which looks exactly the same. So I can just copy it straight down from here, but every time I see an s, I need a minus s. So now we keep going and just copy this straight down, one-half log of 1 over 2 pi n. Now let's see if we can gather these other terms. Log of 2, okay, that should be an easy term to spot. So I have minus sign here with a minus sign will give me an overall plus. And I have n up plus n down plus a half plus. All of that together will be n plus 1, okay, log of 2. Here, how do you get this minus 2s squared? It's coming from this term here, okay, so there's a 2s and a 2s with a minus sign right there. So I need to worry about n up minus n down. But n up minus n down is 2s. Okay. So it gives me a minus 2s squared over n. It came out of this term here, 2s over n with 2s over n. 
the end up minus the end down. Okay? There we go. Hang in there for over some of those algebra. And here, this term, okay, I have 2s over n squared. I get that here and here. And I have an n up with an n down. Okay, but this time they're going to appear with the same sign. There's a minus and a minus means it's a plus. So it'll be plus a half n, okay, for n up plus n down, times 2s over n squared. Okay. And things that are left over are going to be small. So here, for example, I have a 2s over n squared that came from this 1 half plus a 1 half term. That's here. But it's going to end up being small because I'm in the limit that s is much smaller than n. So in the limit that, that s is much smaller than n, here I have uh, a 2s squared over n, so it's 1 power of s over n. That's going to get to stay. Uh, this guy is, is somewhat similar. It's going to have uh, once you take into account this is an n divided by n squared, it's s squared over n. That's going to get to stay. s squared divided by n squared is not going to get to stay in our approximation. Okay, we'll throw that out. So now, gather terms. Okay, so just copy this guy straight down. Here, I can gather those two terms together because if I absorb this n into the n squared in the denominator, that'll become 2s squared divided by n. Then I have a minus 1 plus a half gives a minus a half times 2s squared over n. Now we have plus n log 2 and plus a half log 4. Okay, where'd that come from? That's here, okay, log 2. I rewrote log 2, okay? Do you believe me that I can rewrite log 2 as log of 4 to the 1 half? Because square root of 4 is 2. So this is the same term. Okay, I did that so I get a half here and now I can combine it with that term. So if I take this term here, the log, okay, with a half in front, and log of 4, now I get to put this 4 up here in the numerator. 4 divided by 2 gives me a 2 upstairs, okay, and then divided by pi n. And the rest of it should copy down pretty well. Here, this term comes straight down, okay, 2s squared over n. and a 2 squared divided by 2, so I get an overall 2, n log 2. And the rest, we shall throw out the rest is order of 1 over n squared. And we're assuming that n is huge. And Avogadro's number 10 to the 23, something like that. Okay. You with me so far? So far, the multiplicity function, the log of it, is a half log of 2 over pi n minus 2s squared over n plus n log 2. What we're going to do is re-exponentiate everything now. Okay, and we'll find that the multiplicity function is a Gaussian. Can you can you see it yet? Where the Gaussian term is going to come from? Take e of both sides, e to the both sides. So here's where it's going to come up. You get an e to the minus two s squared over n. Okay, so that's what we just derived. And in fact, I can gather terms here. Okay, and then I have. You know, if I look at all of this stuff and I say, well, s is really the variable. <coughs> n, the total number of parts in the system is an input. It's the total number of, of spins I'm flipping or of coins I'm flipping. S is the variable. Okay? That's, that's analogous to last time you calculated the chance of half your coins coming up head or 20% of your coins coming up head. That's, that's the spin access. So that's, that's the variable. Everything else, okay, is just a constant. 
So we lump all that together, everything else, log of g of 0, that's independent of s, minus the 2s squared over n. Now exponentiate both sides, okay? And we uh, will get here that g itself, when I re-exponentiate everything, has something left over, log of g of 0, becomes g of 0. And now there's an e to the minus 2s squared over n. Ta-da! only four pages of algebra. And g of 0 was 2 over pi n squared of n times 2 to the n. Okay. So a lot of work. But here's what <coughs> we did. We took the multiplicity, n factorial divided by n up factorial divided by n down factorial. And now we've shown okay, that in the limit of our system size, that becomes a Gaussian. Okay. And uh, this is good. We can calculate lots and lots of things with, with Gaussian. Are there any questions so far? Okay, get the big star. Okay, so uh, multiplicity function, the two-state system is, is Gaussian in the thermodynamic limit. The big star means that's important. Take that home. It means wake up right now. Wake up and look at the Gaussian. So that's what we did. Okay, multiplicity function is a Gaussian. This is lovely. This means that I made these on a map. That needs to be a graphic. So let me show you what the graphic was. It's just a bottom of Gaussian. Okay, so you know what a Gaussian looks like. It's just a peak function. Okay, and the height of the Gaussian. Okay, the height of the, so the Gaussian is, is g, the multiplicity function e to the minus 2s squared over n, okay? This is the plot of, of s, with s being 0 here, okay? When s is 0, that's your half of them are up, half of them are down configuration. What is the height of the Gaussian? If I go to s0. Is it big or small? The, the height of the Gaussian at 0 spin excess in the thermodynamic limit, do you expect that to be large or small? Oh, I'm good. I hear a fight going on. All right. So who says large? Well, large is any of the other points. Yeah. Okay. So two to the n. Okay. With a with a one over square root of n. So this is going to be a very heavy peaked function. The uh, width of it is going to go like square root of n. So in the thermodynamic limit, this is going to sharpen up and sharpen up. Some of the properties of the multiplicity function are that if I take if I take the multiplicity function and integrate uh, integrate it over all the possible microstates, okay, all the possible S's. That is, what does this mean? This means take this function here and what's the area under it? Okay, the area under it I'll get two to the n. That's the same thing as if I taken the original multiplicity function, okay, in, in the factorial form, and summed up over all the possible in-up configurations and all the possible in-down configurations. I would also get 2 to the n. Okay, so that's the same thing as, as uh, some of our factorial, in-up factorial, in-down factorial over, if I sum over all the in-up, I'll also get 2 to the n. So this is good because we made some approximations to the distribution function, but we've basically made sure that at the end of the day 
it's normalized properly so they get all the states back. That's an important thing in the probability distribution. You definitely need to have the probability that something happens. Okay, so I got all the states back again. This is good. And that's, that's what this means. Now, there's a little bit of a trick here in that really we're thinking of discrete things, okay, but we went to numbers that are 10 to the 23. So even though I really want to think of a sum, sum of n factorial over n factorial and non factorial, in the limit of our system size, there's you know, very small steps going on here between, you know, if I have 10 to the 23 particles and I add another more, you know, what's one particle out of 10 to the 23? That's a good enough approximation in the subsize to be able to take the limit of the sum into an integral. So that's what we've done here, taking this as, as an integral, even though it's really about discrete configurations. And the multiplicity function is very sharp. This is, I should have, I wonder if I put a star there. No star, okay, but there should be a star here. And very sharp, because the multiplicity function being very sharp is the reason statistical mechanics works. Okay, if it were not a sharp function, if it were flat, for example, nobody could get anywhere by doing statistical mechanics. What we're going to assume about objects is that they are, basically there's a set of m most probable configurations and that they are so likely compared to the other things. The thing is that, really, I haven't, haven't drawn this very well to the scale. Okay, if I drew this and I put tried to make the height scale appropriately and the width scale appropriately and I drew it for, uh, if I drew it for an Avogadro's number of particles, you would no longer be able to see with your eye that it's a Gaussian. Okay, if I drew that Gaussian in the limit that n goes to 10 to the 23, that's what it would look like. Okay. And that right there is why statistical mechanics works. Because we will assume, since it becomes a double function, that the system is here. And for all practical purposes, it is. Okay, there's always, you know, technically some chance it could be over here, but that chance is so small that it, it'll never happen. Are there any questions about why we did all that work? Okay. So, we got a Gaussian, and I told you that the reason, part of the reason we like Gaussians is because we know how to use them we know how to take integrals with them, and that's going to help us take weighted averages. Now that we have a probability distribution function that's a Gaussian, we can take moments of the Gaussian, we can take averages out of it. We'll be able to take that distribution function, and I'll be able to say what's the average uh, number of uh, ups, what are the fluctuations, okay? If I give you a particular configuration, how often are you going to miss the most probable configuration and be a little bit off, and that's going to go like square root of n. So we'd like to be able to take integrals of the Gaussian. So this is just to remind you how to take the Gaussian integral. Uh, this result right here, that if I take a Gaussian integral and go from minus infinity to infinity, e to the minus x squared dx is square root of pi. That's one of those integrals, by the way, that will come up forever and ever and ever, so just memorize it now. You know, nobody ever told me to memorize stuff as I was going through physics class. So I said, oh, physicists don't memorize things. Well, you know, if you memorize that, I'm telling you, you're going to be happy about it, okay? Because Gaussian integrals come up again and again and again. And now you'll just have it in your head and you'll think, oh, is there a factor of two or is there a factor of uh, something else in there? So Gaussian integrals square root of pi. Why is it okay that I'm taking 
integrals from minus infinity to infinity? It is symmetric, that's correct. So if you can go from zero to infinity, you just have to twice it. Okay, that's true, that's true. But there was another step in here in that I was taking, I was thinking about, for example, uh, discrete configuration, where really, if I sum here, what I really meant was the sum over the spin axis. That's what I really meant. But what were the limits on my sum? What can the, the spin axis be? So the spin axis was n up minus n down divided by two. Integral e to the minus r squared 
And then the other tricky thing is to get the measure right, dx, dy is r, dr, d theta. Have you seen that Simpsons with the RDR? Okay. Okay. <laughs> so RDR is C theta, and R goes from 0 to infinity, theta goes from 0 to 2 pi. Now I'm going to use the following, okay, that if I take D of e to the minus R squared, that's the derivative of e to the minus R squared, I'll pull down a minus 2R as e to the minus R squared dr. That looks very much like what I have in here, right? e to the minus r squared, r, dr, all in there. <coughs> so this integral then of e to the minus r squared, r, dr, is the same thing as minus half integral d of e to the minus r squared. So just did a trick there so that I can integrate it. <coughs> and I have put this arrow in the wrong spot. This arrow should have been coming from this guy here. So this is, this is the integral, sorry, just ignore the end arrow, okay? So if I'm thinking about this r integral, e to the minus r squared r dr, that's the same thing as this, okay? Minus a half comes right out, and we can all integrate dx. Okay, integrate dx is x. So here's my x, e to the minus r squared, minus another e to the r squared, at the limits of integration. And when r is infinity, what happens to my Gaussian? Yeah, it's zero. Good, there we go. And when r is zero, even zero is one. So there's the rest of it. And then minus a half times minus one is a half. Okay. So to get, I get an overall a half coming from this part here. What about here? Integrate zero to two pi d theta. Okay, all right. So all in all, I'm gonna get a one half here times the two theta, which is gonna give me, sorry, times the two pi, which is gonna give me a pi, which is here. I not squared. All together is pi, which means if I work backwards now and take the square root of both sides, then I get that the Gaussian integral is square root of pi. Okay, all right. So uh, integrate minus infinity u the minus x squared dx and square root of pi. The reason I showed you all that is because you know I hate it when I'm doing homework at 2 a.m. and I don't want to go to the library and look up what the Gaussian integral is. But there, now you can. Rewrite for yourself. We'll look back in our notes here. Okay. Um, any questions about this? Okay. So we're going to take a break for 10 minutes and come back in 10 minutes. More homework here. Truncated, they're rational. <laughs> Those are rational. <laughs> so let's get started again after a break here. Uh, Eric had a suggestion. Which was? Oh, uh, if, if she could print or put, post uh, PowerPoints like before class, we could write on How many people would like to have the PowerPoints so you can scribble on the margins while during lecture? Okay, all right. We'll try that. Okay. It does require me to have the PowerPoint finished in sufficient time. So, for example, this is the overheads right now because the <laughs> PowerPoint. <laughs> but we'll see. I'll, I'll try it. Okay. So we'll do the experiment. Since if everyone falls asleep that way, then maybe the experiment will end. Uh, okay. So we we did the multiplicity function for the two-state system. We calculated that in the large limit, which is the thermodynamic limit, it's a, a Gaussian function. And 
some of the important properties were that all possible states are contained in uh, the multiplicity function. So for example, if I sum over g of s, okay, that's 2 to the n. There are 2 to the n ways to have n coins land. Okay. So when n goes to large, like an Avogadro's number, then s over n becomes small, where s was n up minus n down divided by 2. So what we've already done is to say that the sum over s from minus n over 2 to n over 2 of the multiplicity function, we could take 2 an integral, integrate minus n over 2 to n over 2 of and we said it was plenty good enough. Can you guys see that okay? Mm -hmm. It's a darker color. Yes? You'll post these online also. I will post these online. Yeah, the handwritten list will get scanned in. Actually, the last lecture's notes are already scanned in and posted online. Yeah, it will all be posted. So, now I can take that the limit minus n over 2 to n over 2 go to infinity because we're in a large system size and there's nothing left to the distribution function passed there anyway. So minus infinity to infinity, g of s, cs. So what is that equal to? We know that our multiplicity function itself, okay, I'm going to plug in what's in there and we're going to show that this really is true, that 2 over pi n the one half, two to the n, e to the minus two s squared over n dx. Now I did this plug it in. Now we're going to take the integral and see if it's true. We've kept all the states. What's, what's important about keeping all the states is we made an approximation, right? We just took a Taylor expansion, and our criterion was that high order terms we threw out. There's really no guarantee here that we've got a normalized distribution. We want to make sure that we've kept all the states that's going to be important as well. We don't want to throw out order of 1 over n things or anything like that. So here I can pull out everything that doesn't depend on s. 2 over pi n, the 1 half 2 to the n, even minus 2x squared over n dx. Now I can uh, play a trick here in that I'd like to normalize things out. We know how to do the integral from minus infinity to infinity of e to the minus x squared dx. So I need to make that look like that. And if I multiply by square root of 2 over n, then I'll get a variable <coughs> that's like this variable up here. But then I also need to multiply again by n over 2 square root. Multiply and divide by the same thing. We pull this out, the n over 2, the 1 half, 2 to the n. Now I have integrate e to the minus x squared dx. Okay. Which is? Good.
So now we have a 2 over pi n, one half. We can take this pi here and put it inside as well. n pi over 2 to the one half to the n. Okay, so you see what happens. This is the same as that upside down. So I really did get 2 to the n, which is good. Okay, that means that I still have all the states in there, even though I made a large n approximation. That's the importance of that. All states are represented. And now you can use this Gaussian form to redo the problem we did last time. Last time you did the problem of take 10 coins, throw them in the air, and see where they land. Okay, are they heads up or heads down? Take 100 coins and do the same thing. And you found that the probability of getting 50% compared to the probability of getting 20% was becoming much more likely in the uh, thermodynamic limits. Okay, because you found, for example, by the time you got to 100 coins, the chances of 20% of them coming up heads was down by eight orders of magnitude. That's pretty significant. Okay, so we can, you know, I could have tortured you even further and said, well, do the problem exactly again for 10 to the 23 particles. That wouldn't be very nice for this. Okay, it's hard to take factorials of 10 to the 23, which is why we did all this work for the multiplicity function. So, the most probable configuration ends up being the only configuration you really need to think about. Our multiplicity function, 2 over pi n to the 1 half, 2 to the n e to the minus 2s squared over n, Okay, so back when you had n a hundred, all states, right, this two to the n was approximately equal to 1.2 times 10 to the 30, which is a lot. And then the probability, okay, to write last time's problem in the new language, this g of a hundred comma zero, okay, that is the chance of 50% heads. Okay, so that's what you did last time, chance of 50% heads. And that's uh, approximately uh, 1 times 10 to the 29. Okay, and I can get that just by plugging in here the numbers. So once again, just like last time, if I take this number, 1 times 10 to the 29, and divide by 1.2 times 10 to the 30, okay, <coughs> so the relative, sorry, the probability of getting half, half the, the spin being off is 1.0 times 10 to the 29, divided by 1.2 times 10 to the 30 is 8% uh, again, okay, just like you found last time. Okay. 1 12th is 8%, approximately. Okay, so that's what you found last time, 8% chance of that. And uh, <coughs> the most probability, so now, okay, as n goes to 10 to the 23, the most probability 
configuration may as well be the only configuration. Last time you threw 100 pennies on the floor, but now you know how to throw 10 to the 23 pennies on the floor and do a calculation. So you could do, for example, just to compare to your penny problem, you could now calculate things like 10 to the 23, 0, k, and g of 10 to the 23 with 20% uh, of those being 10, so that would be 0.2 times 10 to the 23, right? 20% heads, do that. This is not quite 0.3 because it's a deviation. Right. Okay. So this would be similar to the last time, right? 50% heads, 20% uh, heads. You have a method now for handling that in a very large size. <coughs> And again, the multiplicity function is very, very sharp. So g of ns, 2 over pi n, 1 half 2 to the n, equal to minus 2s squared over n, for s is square root of n over 2. I chose that just because it's going to be an easy number. Okay. But when s, and this is again the spin excess, one half times the number up minus the number down. Okay. So for s equals square root of n over 2, then g of ns goes to g of 0, that's just everything on its front of g of, is g of 0. Okay. When the spin excess is 0, that's what the multiplicity function is. E to the minus, okay, so when it's n over 2 uh, square root squared, so e to the minus 1. Okay, so by the time I go out to square root of n, there we go, sorry, I have to keep the middle one. By the time I go out, square root of n in the distribution of function, okay, then I'm down by 1 over e. Pretty fast, okay. So when n, for example, uh, for, for n goes like 10 to the, let's do something we can actually do, 10 to the 22, okay, then square root of n is about 10 to the 11, okay, and that percentage difference between square root of n and n uh, is also about uh, 10 to the 11 over 10 to the 22 is 10 to the minus 11. Okay, so you see that very rapidly, right, as you, as you get away from the most <coughs> probable configuration. Even though your fluctuation, we say that the fluctuation can be of the order of square root of n because I still have 1 over e left for the distribution at that point but it's rapidly falling off. Okay, it is an exponential drop-off. So beyond that, beyond spin axis of about square root of n, really nothing is going on. Okay, it drops off very, very fast. And there's really this 
not much beyond us is about square root of x. And so if we draw this thing to scale, here's a multiplicity function to scale. Very, very sharp. And that's why it's going to kind of sort of question. Where does square root of n over n come from? Well, I wanted to compare the spin excess. So if I say that the spin excess is, is about square root of n, okay. so just an es estimate what my spin excess right. would be out at, uh, out where the multiplicity function is fallen down by 1 over e. Just to compare, okay. Good question. It's because basically my multiplicity function is defined from s goes from minus n over two to n over two, and so for this example, that would be about ten to the twenty-two over two. Okay, and the multiplicity function has gone down to, to okay, so. It's Starts off at, at um, g of zero, which is actually a pretty large number. Right. Okay, so here it is at g of zero, but it drops down to one over e of that. By the time s becomes ten to the eleven, and on a scale where this is zero and this is ten to the twenty-two, yeah, right. ten to the eleven is here. Right. So it's dropped down. Right in there, it's ten to the eleven. <laughs> okay. It's a uh, 11 orders of magnitude smaller. Yeah. Any other questions? Good question. Yes. Um, yesterday, as we were increasing n on the coin right. top, when they, um, the probability relatively got much larger, but the absolute probability got lower. Right. And here, if we get to a delta function, I mean, that's basically going off to infinity pretty much. It's a true delta function. So how do we know that when increasing n produces a lower absolute percentage probability and when increasing n produces a higher absolute probability. Mm, okay. So you're worried about the absolute probabilities at s equals zero. Um, you said earlier it's very large and it is relative yeah. to everything else, but is it absolutely? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, why don't we calculate that next lecture and see for sure exactly how that height of the function is, is going. Okay? All right. Now we know in some sense Okay, so it may depend on exactly how we define the, the, uh, the limiting process. But we know that this function needs to approach a, approach a delta function because the properties of it are such that when I integrate the entire thing, I get 1, but it's also becoming infinitely sharp. So there's some sense in which we can define the limit and say that it's going to be a delta function. Yeah. But that's that's a good question. Okay. So yes. Absolute percentage. The percentage of getting fifty percent, like the chance of getting fifty percent uh, of s equals zero. Is that they're going to keep going down as we keep adding uh, more ends? 
Yeah. Okay. So actually, what what we're getting to here, which is a really important point, is that the more proper way to define these things is as intervals, rather than actual discrete values. Okay. That's that's what you're hitting at. So if I told you, for example, to calculate how much in this just how much weight is there in this distribution around s equals zero, if I integrate from s if I integrate from minus square root of n to square root of n. Okay. So uh, and that's a well-defined question. Okay. And that'll have a finite amount of weight in it. Or if I even said, you know, don't even worry about square root of n, just go, you know, if n is 10 to the 22, let's integrate that peak, you know, from uh, 10 to the minus 10 to 10 to the 10 or something like that. Sorry, minus, minus 10 to the 10 to 10 to the 10. Okay. So what, what, what you're bringing up, and which, is, which is true generally, is that when you take a discrete system and go to the continuous case, now you should really be thinking in terms of intervals. Okay. So that's, that's, that's the way to resolve the seeming paradox. Okay. It's very good because there's so many, so many possible outcomes and when you get more right. and more different abilities that even though it's 8% chance to get 50%, it's a way higher percent to get between 45 and 55%. Exactly. That's exactly what we should be talking about is throw as many coins as you want, and what's the chance of getting between 45% and 55%? Yes. Good point. Any other so comments? Well, yes? Yeah. Just, just approaching a delta function. Yeah. Height really is going to infinity. In some sense. Pretty close. It'll, it'll depend how we define height and take the limits and those sort of things. Okay. You're right, though. The delta function really is infinite at, at its origin. So now I want to think about weighted averages. These uh, are important in statistical mechanics. So if we take our usual binary model of either coin or up or down. And again, our fundamental assumption is that all accessible states are equally likely. That is, all states of the same energy are equally likely. There's no particular reason to choose one over the other, one over the other. So, what we'd like to know is how do we calculate average probabilities? Sorry, average properties of the system. We'd like to be able to know things like what's the temperature and what's the heat capacity, what's the total energy, things like that. So as an example, to warm us up, we're going to gamble some more and play Powerball. 
Okay? So let's say we're playing Powerball. There are nine balls. Okay. So what I put up here is I put up nine power balls. I have three ones, three twos, and three threes. Okay. And we're going to play games randomly choosing uh, the balls. Okay. So nine balls. Pull one out at random. Okay. Pick one ball at random. Okay. So you're going to pick one ball at random, pick one ball at random, pick one ball at random. What's the average value on the ball? How would you how would you calculate that? The average value on the ball? Given that you have nine balls, three ones, three twos, three threes, and you could pick one out, and then you you know reset everything, pick one out at random, reset everything, pick one out at random. If I take data for a long time, what's the average value going to be? Two. Okay. So you know that it's two, but let's see if we can get a method. How would you, um, you know, how did you calculate that? The two. Yeah. Three times one plus three times two divided by nine. Two. Two. Three. How do you nine? Nine balls. Okay. Divided by nine balls. Okay. So you had three ones, three twos, three threes, possible. Divided by nine balls.
By the way, this nine balls here, okay, if I rewrite the nine balls, three times one plus three times two plus three times three. I could have written this as three plus three plus three, which is all of the different sets I have. Three ones, three twos, three threes. This is what's going to end up being what we'll call the partition function. And it talks about how states are partitioned microscopically. So in this case, the partition function is 3 plus 3 plus 3. Well, we will define a partition function better. I just want to tell you the concept came up. Okay, so now let's cheat. Okay, I'm going to help my friend win a Powerball, so I'm going to exchange the balls a little bit now. I'll have one on one, three, three, and now I'm going to make the rest of them twos. Two. And a two and a two. So here's the set of balls now. I still have nine balls, but I have two ones, two threes, and now I have five twos. So what is the average value now? Or how do you calculate, the, that's, that's better, how do you calculate the average value now? Okay, I heard it. Two times what? Two times one plus two. Five. Five times two? Sure. Five times three. Five times nine. Okay, which was three plus, nope, sorry, <coughs> two plus three anymore. Two plus five plus two. That way I keep it as a partition function, so it's properly partitioned, okay? Okay, and in this case, now, now that we're cheating, the probability of, of getting 1 was 2, divided by 2 plus 5 plus 2. I realize I'm, I'm writing these down in odd ways, but I want to set up how we write things in statistical mechanics. In statistical mechanics, we will be interested in how the energy was divided up. and so. And that's the partition function, which is the thing in the denominator. So if we leave it as a 2 plus a 5 plus a 2, uh, that's, that's what I'm getting at, is how things were partitioned up in the, in the first place. So 2 over 2 plus 5 plus 2, that's the probability of getting a 1, which is 2 nice. Probability of getting a 2 was 5 divided by 2 plus 5 plus 2, okay, 5 nice. Probability of getting a 3 was 2 divided by 2 plus 5 plus 2 is 2 nice. So you'll notice if I add all those up, I get 1, right? That's how probability should always work. Probability of 1 plus probability of 2 plus probability of 3 is 1, as it always should be. Something should always happen, okay? And the average value I can express as 1 times the probability of 1 plus 2 times the probability of 2 plus 3 times the probability of 3. Okay. And in general, the general way to do a weighted average is to say that the average value of some quantity, okay, so those, those angle brackets are going to denote averages, average of quantity A, A here being, for example, the number on the ball. I will sum up all the configurations And 
not the weighted average. So that's what we've been doing to get to get these weighted averages. I sum up over all the possibilities, I mean possibility, a probability of that possibility times the value at that possibility. Sum all that up gives me the average, which is the weighted average. So that's how we'll calculate quantities that we expect to come up in statistical mechanics. So based on based on what we'll, we will uh, assume about the microscopic uh, interactions and how, how particles work microscopically and quantum mechanically, we will be able to write very large and complicated probability distribution functions and calculate averages out of them. And it will turn out, since we're dealing with such large numbers, that the average behavior is very, very, very close to what the system actually does. Okay. And that's how we will get averages. Are there any questions so far? So our weighted average So to use, for example, our um, S language, this would be where S is the spin excess. Okay. So we always require star. Always require the sum of all the configurations of all the probabilities is one, which means it's normalized. Normalized means that something should always happen. So back to our binary model and its multiplicity. That's what we had for the multiplicity function. And the multiplicity function we know somehow contains in it, um, contains in it information about the probabilities, but because when I sum over the multiplicity function I get 2 to the n, that means that it's not a probability yet. Okay. So how would you turn this guy into a probability? If I wanted to write an actual probability for this, how would I, how could I do it? Yeah. So I can take this g of n s and divide it by 2 to the n. That's going to give me actual probability. And now everything is, it gets normalized uh, to 1. Okay. Actually, this, <laughs> this is the solution to the questions you guys were asking just after break about why when we threw 10 coins, we had a 25% chance of getting half heads and then an 8% chance of getting half heads. Now that I take the 2 to the n out, of the multiplicity function, it's going to behave correctly. We, that was that was our problem. We had not normalized the probability distribution. Okay, so now it's normalized, and the sum of our S of P of S is one, as it should be. And if I want to take averages, for example, okay, so true average now would be sum over S of 
whatever value I'm interested in, such as, for example, the magnetization. I can take averages now. Or I can be integrating DS to the body book of the DS right after the interval. Yeah. Integrate DS, okay, so then everything else to the right is being integrated over that measure. And then G of N itself was 2 over pi N to the 1 half. 2 to the n, e to the minus 2x squared over n. Okay. So not, now that I've written back up here what g of s really is, you see it had a 2 to the n in it, right? So when I normalize that by 2 to the n, I got a 1 over square root of n. So in fact, then the height of the Gaussian, once we normalize the probability, was going down. Just, just like you Okay, so I can calculate now, for example, the average uh, spin excess. I'm ready to do that. Average spin excess S. So, what do you what do you expect it to be? By the way, what's the average spin excess? That's right. So we're going to show that it's zero. Uh, so I take so 2 to the n cancels 2 to the n, and I get a 2 over pi n to the 1 half, integrate ds, uh, s, the a that I'm interested in, okay, a of s in this case is s, so I'd like to average s over all the configurations, either minus 2s squared over n, so minus infinity, 2 infinity. Now, I could either work really hard and take this integral for real and show that it's 0, or I can be slick, I prefer to be slick, so I'm integrating something from minus infinity to infinity. I have an odd function s times an even function, which makes an overall odd function. So integrating an odd function from minus infinity to infinity means it goes away. So this is an overall odd function. So then the average value of s is zero. Now, okay, that didn't really tell us too much. We kind of already knew that. But we can calculate other interesting things. We can calculate the root mean square. Okay. The RMS value of S. This is root <laughs> mean square. Okay. Which means I'd like to take square root of the mean of the square. That's the RMS. Okay. That'll tell me something about, even though the system tends to have, you know, on average, no spin excess, any particular time that I measure it, it'll be a little bit off, right? A little bit this way, a little bit that way, just because it's random. A little bit, a little bit off. So, on average, if I measure then, you know, how do I, how can I um, quantify that? Okay, how can I quantify the average fluctuations of the system? This is how you do it because this is the quantity that's going to have the same units of s, whatever s is, right? So it's the square and then the square, got the same units. But I've guaranteed it's going to survive the integration process. 
because I'll take an average of something that can even function. Okay, so now, now it will survive. So I need to calculate S squared, and we have a formula for doing that now. We want BS, S squared, uh, D of NS, to the end, right, our probability. And that's going to be equal to, again, 2 over pi n, all of that to the 1 half. Integrate from minus infinity to infinity, s squared e to the minus 2 s squared over n bs. So, I can, uh, I'm trying to see if I, if I set this up in the best way or not. Okay. Alright. So first, first I'm going to scale this out. Okay, I have a 2 up there, and I'd like to make it look a little bit better. So, change variables. I want x squared to equal 2x squared over n. So, x squared equals n over 2x squared, and s equals square root of n over 2x. Okay, so I'm just scaling things out. Can you see that okay? Alright. So now the integral becomes, carry down the 2 over pi n to 1 half. And uh, I know I'm going to end up with an x squared e to the minus x squared b, b x. But let's see what else comes out. s squared was really n over 2 times x squared. So I have an n over 2 that came out because of that. The s was really a square root of n over 2 times x. It's also square root of n over 2 that had to come out. Okay. And then what was up here was already x squared. Does that make sense? Did it change the variables? Okay. So now what we need to learn how to do is take this integral. Okay. So how do you take this integral? I said we were excited that we had Gaussians because Gaussians are doable, okay? You can take any average you want to over a Gaussian probability distribution. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to calculate this, x squared equal to minus x squared, the x from minus infinity to infinity, and there's a trick. Okay, so let me teach you how to take any average you want over a Gaussian distribution function. So what I'd like to do is rather than rather than this exact problem, I'm going to change the problem just a little bit and first calculate e to the minus alpha x squared dx. Right, x okay? So I'm really so first I'm going to do the integral x squared e to the minus alpha x squared dx. Okay, the reason I'd like to do that is because d by d alpha of e to the minus alpha x squared is minus alpha, sorry, minus, sorry again, minus x squared equal minus alpha x squared. 
So I can use the derivative of this dummy variable. I just inserted a variable alpha out of nowhere. I'm going to do some manipulations. At the end of the day, I'm going to set alpha to 1. Okay, and that will help me take this integral. So take the derivative of e to the minus alpha x squared with respect to alpha. Pulls down a minus x squared to the minus x, oh, sorry, alpha x squared. Okay. So that means that I can rewrite the integral here. Okay. Okay. I can write this as minus d by the alpha integrate minus infinity to infinity even minus alpha x squared dx. Any questions so far? Okay, so it's going to give me what I want. And this integral is close to a Gaussian. Okay, if I scale it out again, I'll get uh, a real Gaussian here. So change variables again. So y squared equals alpha x squared. Okay. So that x will have to equal square to alpha y. Yeah. This is negative d by the alpha. Uh, the x here will give me a 1 over square root of alpha. Take the dx. And integrate minus infinity to infinity e to the minus alpha. Sorry. E to the minus y squared before I did that. And what is the integral of e to the minus y squared dy? From minus infinity to infinity. Take the integral of the day. Square root of pi. Okay. So at the end of the day, I've shown that the integral from minus infinity to infinity, x squared e to the minus alpha x squared dx is minus d by d alpha squared pi over alpha. Okay. And you can use that same trick to calculate any even power of the, the integral. Okay. Odd powers go away because it's Gaussian. But even powers can be calculated this way. So now we get to work this out. That's equal to minus square root of pi d by d alpha e to the minus, sorry, alpha to the minus a half minus square root of pi. So I'll take the uh, derivative of that minus a half alpha to the minus three halves. Okay. So where are we going with this? What we really, really like, okay, we wanted integrate minus infinity to infinity x squared to the minus x squared to the x. Okay, and now we have a formula for it. I know what it is if there's an alpha sitting up there. So now I just have to set alpha to 1. So this is square root of pi over 2, alpha to the minus 3 halves, taking an alpha equals 1, which is square root of pi 2. 
Any questions? Alright, so remember that trick. A useful trick for getting uh, uh, averages, you know, means you can just take these Gaussian averages off the top of your head at cocktail parties or conferences, impress everybody, and fame and fortune will come your way. But learn the trick, it's important. Okay, so that's it for now. The stuff will be posted. Make sure you got your homework set, and uh, I'll see you next week.